seems like it's awfully loud. No? Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? So, Father in heaven, thank you for letting us be here and to study your word, your living word. Lord God, we just um, ask that you'd bless us with uh, wisdom and discretion, understanding and knowledge that we might not only uh, learn this word, but understand it and be able to use it in the future. And Father, we do want to pray that you would bless uh, all of these uh, elections that are going on. And Father, it's, it's hard for us to believe sometimes that you put the people in office that you want to have there. But Lord, we just pray that these elections will go the way you want them to and uh, that you'll help us to accept that, whatever the outcome may be. Lord, we just ask also that, Father, you'd uh, pour out your Holy Spirit on every single person in this world, first of all, on your believers, Lord. Help us, Lord God, with our health, spiritual, mental, and physical. Uh, help us with our marriages, our singleness, our families, jobs and businesses, our ministries. Father, just pour out your Holy Spirit on those believers who are living in countries where they cannot worship you openly or they're living in and through some type of disaster. And we thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit of comfort, Father, and we're gonna study about that tonight. Father, we pray that you'll pour out your Holy Spirit on your uh, Jewish population around the world, as well as the nation of Israel. And that, Father, you would convict them that Jesus Christ is not only the Savior of the world, but that he's their Savior. Lord, we pray that you'll pour out your Holy Spirit on the unbelievers. For those searching for truth, we pray that they'll find it. For those not searching for truth, those suppressing truth, changing truth, disguising truth, we pray that your divine righteousness and justice, holiness and purity will deal thoroughly with those folks, Lord. We do pray that, Lord God, for uh, all of the uh, elected and non-elected officials in our country, that, Father, you would uh, convict them to follow your word, at least your divine establishment principles, Lord. And Father, we just pray that you'll help us to be witnesses for you as we see the time closing in on us, Lord, that, that time when we're going to be taken up, Father. So, Father, just instruct our hearts and bless us with your spirit, and uh, may we glorify you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Go to, uh, start with Acts chapter 18, okay? And I think it's fun for us to, to review a couple of things real quick before we get into uh, 2 Corinthians. I wanted to show you where Paul had come from. He was in Athens, Greek, Greece in uh, chapter 17. And just so you'll get an idea of what the culture was like, uh, during this time, it really does a pretty good job of, of telling us in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Here's what it says. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. 
Some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. I mean, there were so many false religions, so many uh, opinions of the afterlife, if there was even an afterlife. And so Paul comes in and he is preaching to these people and it's just amazing the um, backlash he gets, okay? Fortunately, very fortunately, he made a lot of converts, but he also got a lot of backlash. In verse uh, 19 it says, Then they took him, that would be Paul, and brought him to a meeting at the Areopagus. That's a weird one. Where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men and they should, that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine is like, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered and others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Aragapus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So now Paul, he leaves Athens, okay? And this would be, his, I believe, his second missionary journey. He had uh, at least three missionary journeys that we know about. 
and perhaps at least one more that maybe we don't. So in chapter 18 and verse 1, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now, one thing that you'll want to remember is that not only did Paul make tents, but this word in the Greek uh, covers all kinds of leather making, leather goods and leather this and leather that, okay? So it wasn't just tent making that they did. It says here in verse 4, Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus, Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. While Gala Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews, now Gallio, remember, is the proconsul here, he's in, he's in charge. He said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle them out of yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Galio showed no concern whatsoever. And then we see Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers, and he sailed for Syria. So we go to our first letter in 1 Corinthians. Okay, you can turn there if you want to. You say you know Okay. A place. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I knew it was some, some place, but I didn't know how to pronounce the name. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians, okay, if you want to. 
And so Paul stayed in Corinth for how long? A year and a half. Yeah. Okay, so in a year and a half, he had plenty of time to minister to these people, to learn about them, to learn about what was going on in the church that he founded there and, and uh, helped to grow. And the first thing we see here is in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 10, he says this, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. And that, of course, is a problem with the, with the Christian church from really from the earliest days of its history up to now is that God wants unity in his, in his believing people and it seems like we reject that an awful lot. He goes on and he talks about the gospel. He talks about the wisdom and power of God. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. What did they do in Athens? We just read about it in chapter 17. It says that they sat around and they talked all day about philosophy and about this and about that. And that's, that was the big deal. Okay, If you didn't have a full-time job or whatever, you got to sit around and talk. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, hey, you know what? All that talking is foolish. All that talking is the wisdom of the world. It's not the wisdom of God. He says in verse 20, Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Well, then he, he, I love verse 25. He goes on, he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Then he goes into chapter 2, and he talks about the message, and he talks about the power that he brought the message in. He says in chapter 2, verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So he, he goes on to, in this to, to talk about the Holy Spirit. He says this, he says in verse 7, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but... God has revealed it to us by his spirit. 
The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. In chapter 3, he goes on in verse 1, there's still, I mean, these, these Corinthian believers were, were, were fairly young believers and they were very immature. And he says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were yet not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when another says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? After all, what after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Then he goes on in uh, chapter 3, starting at verse 10, and he talks about that scripture that, I, that I, I've referred to many times about him being the expert foundation layer, okay? Paul was the expert builder. He laid the foundation. And what is the foundation he laid? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him being resurrected. Jesus Christ and him being ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for us. That's what he was emphasizing. And so he says this. He says... In verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss of the reward. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the fl uh, flames. So then he talks about the apostles of Christ in chapter 4. He talks in chapter 5 that there was that immoral brother that was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul says, hey, look, you know, this stuff, stuff this kind of stuff doesn't even, even occur among pagans. And yet you tolerate it in your church services. And that's not good. And uh, the one thing I want to bring, oh, bring out to you... And, and let's look at um, verse 3, chapter 5, verse 3. Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. So we as Christians can pass judgment on certain things, but there are certain things that we don't pass judgment on, okay? 
The one thing I try never to pass judgment on is, is a person saved or not? Only God really knows that for sure, you know? And, and because when we look at people, we might be looking at certain qualities that we associate with people that are being saved. But it's very possible uh, that uh, someone that we, and you may have one of these people in your family, uh, someone that we know has accepted the Lord, but they've just never done anything with it, really. And that's very, very sad. And they will, when they get to heaven, and that, the, that fire, that judgment fire, reveals the work, the quality of the work, their work will be burned up because they don't have any work. Okay, But here in chapter 5, he says this. He passes judgment. He says in verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit. In other words, I don't even have to be there. And the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature or the human body may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now, we're going to see in 2 Corinthians that Paul actually um, Paul actually furthers his comment on this particular brother and says, it, you know, if he's repented, you've got to forgive him. Because if you don't forgive him, he's going to be eaten up with guilt. And that's going to be another tool of Satan. The one tool of Satan was the lust that he uh, uh, mined from this guy's heart, right? He, Satan found and saw the lust. And so he, Satan obviously tempted the, the man. And so then if you don't forgive him and let him back into your fellowship after he's repented, then Satan will come in and do some more bad stuff. Now, he says this in chapter 6. He says, look, if any of you has a dispute with one another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. He's being sarcastic here. I say this to shame you. It is possible, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Now, he goes into uh, a, a, a teaching on what's permissible for a Christian. And he says that really, many things are permissible for a Christian to do, all right? But if it causes your brother to stumble, then you don't do it. 
If it causes your relationship with God to stumble, then you don't do it. All right? And he goes on this. He says in verse 12, chapter 6, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This chapter had more do not knows in it than any of the other chapters we've been in it because we're going to see it again. He says in verse 13, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in the body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Free, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Then in chapter 7, Paul goes on to talk about marriage, singleness. Basically, what he says is this, is that um, if you're married and you're happy to stay with your spouse, stay with them. And if, if they're an unbeliever, I mean, stay with them because your goodness in the Lord may rub off on the unbelieving half of your marriage, okay? And then he talks about married people and he says, look, it's a partnership and uh, you've got to act like partners, you've got to think like partners and, uh, and make sure that you agree. In chapter 8, he talks about food uh, sacrifice to idols. And now he's still talking about this uh, freedom that he has in Christ. He's still talking about everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. And he says this. He says in uh, chapter 8, starting in verse um, 9... He says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. And in chapter uh, 9, he talks about his rights as an apostle. He has the right to have a wife. He has a right to take her um, with him. Uh, He also, in verse 7, talks about the fact that 
the apostles and the ministers of the gospel were worthy of being paid for their, their work in preaching the gospel. In chapter 10, he talks about Israel's history. And he says this, he says this in verse 6. He says, well, let me go to verse 5. He says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Speaking of the Old Testament um, Jews who went through the uh, desert, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And you could, you could insert the word tested here because the word tempted and tested is the exact same word in the in the Greek. So now, he goes on in chapter 10 down to verse 23 about the believer's freedom. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Now in chapter 11, he talks about uh, propriety in worship. He talks about the Lord's Supper, how that it should be uh, reverenced, and how that, uh, you, you know, if, if, if you need to eat and drink, well, eat and drink at home, and then come and, uh, and celebrate the Lord's Supper as Jesus asked us to do, to remember him. We see in verse 12, he talks about spiritual gifts, and he says in verse 4, he says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. And then he goes through a list of spiritual gifts. He says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for what? The common Good. When he says the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, it means that it's not given for your own entertainment. Okay? He says this, verse 8 To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. 
to another gifts of healing by that one spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and same spirit, and he, that would be God, gives them to each one just as he determines. So when we are told, and you'll never hear it from me, but I mean, you'll hear it in some churches, that you need to strain and that you need to pray that God will give you a certain gift and that you just practice it if you have to, okay? You know what my Bible says? My Bible says this. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he, God, gives them to each one just as he determines. We don't determine what gifts we get. He determines it. And if you don't like your gift, take it up with him. Okay? And we all have a gift. And these aren't, these aren't the only gifts because... It, and let me, let me see if I can find it here real quick. I believe it's in Ephesians. And I'm going to say somewhere around chapter... Hmm, Let's see. Am I wrong? Let me see if I... That's Peter. That's not even Ephesians. Uh, Yeah, look... uh, You don't have to look there. But just, just listen. It says this. It was he that would be, speaking of God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And what is the goal of all of it? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So these gifts are given for the body. They're given to build the body up. You know, it's interesting. I mean, can and I've seen this before, actually. You go to a gym, right? And you see some guy working out at the gym, and all he works is his biceps. And he's got these great big, huge biceps and little tweety legs, right? <laughs> no, you don't do that. You work at all parts of the body out so that they're all strong, they're all healthy, and they all can function as a as one unit. Well, then in Ephesians chapter, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's the love chapter. I still haven't um, decided when to bring a Sunday morning teaching on that. If I don't bring it soon, I'm going to have to bring you guys a teaching on it. Okay. In chapter 14, he talks more about the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. Chapter 15 Uh, That was a long chapter, and he talks about resurrection. And he talks the fact that Christ was the first to be resurrected. He is the first fruits, and that we come after that. He says in chapter 15, and chapter 15 is where the gospel is. He says in chapter 15, verse 1, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, and this word could be either if or since, you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, 
Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, if this was strictly, if, if I was just reading strictly a court document, okay, no religion attached to it at all, and I said, yeah, this, this fellow Jesus, he appeared first of all to Peter, then there was 12 more, then after that, 500, and then, and most of those are living, by the way, then after that, uh, let's see, he appeared to uh, James, then to all the apostles, and then, last of all, to me. That would be enough, more than enough evidence in a court of law to have a judge say, oh yeah, that Jesus, he was a real, real dude. He was a real dude. Right here, what we just read was enough in a court of law to say that it's true. We've got eyewitness reports here. So then he goes on, and he says, um, basically he says this, and there, there was controversy because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees, another branch of the Jews, did not believe in the resurrection. And so you've got, you've got a, a, a conflict there. Well, so, uh, so Paul says this, in verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Well, then he goes on in verse 22. He says, for in Adam all die when Adam sinned, okay, committed the sin against God, that, D, that sinful DNA got passed down through the man to all of Adam's children, Adam and Eve. It did not come through the women, through the woman, or through women, it comes through men. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ, the first, first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed 
is death. Now, I want you to skip over to chapter or to fifteen, starting in verse um, fifty. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery, and it is a mystery. We will not all sleep. We're not all going to die. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed for the perishable, that would be the human part of us, must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. I'm going to read to you now uh, a scripture that really is very, very important. It's scripture uh, 58, verse 58 in chapter 15. He says, therefore. Now, when you see a therefore in the Bible, it's therefore a therefore a reason okay therefore my dear brothers stand firm let nothing move you always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain he says basically the same thing in chapter 16 verse 13 he says be on your guard stand firm in the faith be men of courage be strong do everything in love. Now we go into 2 Corinthians, and Paul is writing this second letter to the Corinthians, and in this letter, he's still dealing with some of the problems that the Corinthian church had, okay? Problems with tolerance, problems with uh, um, thinking that certain spiritual gifts were a whole lot better than others and, and that type of thing. So he says in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. So he, he groups in all of these surrounding towns in Achaia uh, in this letter. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never see peace and grace to you because you don't have peace. Peace doesn't come before grace. Grace comes before peace. You have to have God's grace before you can have peace in your life. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice here that in this, in this very short little scripture here, he talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being um, instrumental in our salvation. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now this word comfort in the Greek is the word paraklesis, okay? P-A-R-A-C-L-E-S-I-S. And it is related to the word paraclete. And the word paraclete is translated, or, tr or not necessarily translated, but trans, um, 
what do you call it? Uh, trans something, okay? Um, into the Holy Spirit. So the paraclete is the Holy Spirit, and comfort is paraclesis, which is comfort. Huh? Not transfigured. That wasn't what I was looking for. No. Um, when a word is a word in some language and it is brought over from that language, not translated, you're not translating your. Yeah, maybe. Tra huh? Transcribing. Something like that. <laughs> We've transposed, transcribed, transformed, and everything else. What? What is it? I don't know. That might be a two. Now listen to what he says. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. This should be comforting to you, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort ourselves anytime we want to. Is that what it says? It isn't? Oh, what version do you guys have? Huh. Let's go back then. First of all, this, this word comfort in the original language has the idea of upholding. It has the idea of, of bravery. It has the idea of, of God helping us and, and upholding us so that we can be brave whenever Troubles come our way. And the word for troubles here, I believe, is thlipsis. That's a tongue twister. T-H-L-I, flip, L-I-P-S-I-S. -I -I and uh, I think that that might be the same word that Jesus used in John 16, 33, when he said, in this world you will have troubles. Okay? Troubles. He says this who comforts us, verse 4, in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. You know, the one thing in studying every word, every sentence, every paragraph that, you ha that we have to take from this is that God expects us to be a comfort to our brothers and sisters. He expects us to be in unity with our brothers and sisters. He expects us to use the gifts that he's given to us, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the body, the benefit of our brothers and sisters. And so, you know, some may, may say, well, gee, what does that leave for me? Well, think about it for just a minute. If you use your gift just for yourself, right? How many people are supporting you? One. But if you use your gift and everybody else uses their gifts for the body, now how many people you got supporting you? How many people you got praying for you? How many people you got using their gifts for you? Okay? So, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all 
comfort. Who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. You probably remember that scripture. I'm trying to think where it is. I think it's in John 15. Let me look real quick. And this is what it says, if I'm in the right thing. John 15, starting somewhere around. Oh, yeah, John 15, 18. Here's what it says. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. You know, and... So here we see here in verse 6 in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If we are distressed, why? Because in verse 5 it says, For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. What would you say are the sufferings of Christ? Us. <laughs> true, true, yes. So let's, let's expand on that for a minute then. So sometimes people can cause you to suffer, huh? Sometimes people can be a real pain in the drain. Yeah. And so weren't they that way with Jesus? Aren't they going to be that way in a certain extent with us? Okay. What else did Jesus suffer from? Well, he was rejected. He was despised. He was made fun of. Uh, he was physically abused. Absolutely. And we are, as Christians, will share in some of those, pers in some of those sufferings. Because it says in the Bible, and I don't remember where, I don't know if it's Peter or who, but it says that those who come to Christ will surely be persecuted. Okay? Now... We're very fortunate living in the United States of America that the persecution hasn't been real bad here yet. But it, it could get bad. And, and it probably will get worse than it is now. Um, so, you know what? We're going, to, we're going to trust in the God of all comfort who gives us bravery and courage to resist anything. And he says this, in verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So if you're going to share in Christ's sufferings, guess what? You get to share in his comfort too. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. So one thing about that I want you to know about this Corinthian church is that there had come uh, groups of people who 
um, very much were against Paul and against his teaching. And they said a lot of bad things about Paul. Oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's really not an apostle. And they made up all kinds of different things. I mean, just look at the man. He's short, balding, and has a high, squeaky voice. Do you think that's what God, you know, makes his apostles to be? No. He's got to be tall, dark, and handsome, right, to be an apostle. One of the things that they really nailed Paul on is this. Go back to chapter 16, okay, in 1 Corinthians and in verse 5, okay. He says this. He says, after I go through Macedonia... I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will sp stay with you a while, or even excuse me, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. You know, the Apostle Paul was, he was a hero. He was a man's man. This dude, I mean, talk about not thinking about his own safety or his own welfare or this. He says, man, he says, I got a lot of stuff going on here in Ephesus. I'm going to stay here for a while and preach, even though I've got a bunch of people that are opposing me. Well, what happened, and we'll get to it here. I don't know if we'll get to it tonight. Probably not, but Paul did not make that journey back to Corinth, okay? And the people that were against Paul called him on that. They said, oh, he's... He, he, he says yes and he says no, but he vacillates all over the place. And we'll see that in our, in our study here in a minute. Let me see where that is. Um, yeah, that's in chapter 1. So, so with that in mind, I just want you to keep that in mind so that you'll know when we get to that, that's what we're talking about. It says here in verse 8, We do not want you to be uninformed brothers about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. This is really serious what he's writing about right now. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. Now, we don't know what this is. We don't know. Paul does not explain this. He doesn't explain what this struggle was about. Was it a physical illness? Was it the persecution that they received from the Jews or from others? We just don't know. We can just imagine, you know, that it was something very bad for him to say this. He says this, But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Wow, that's something you should be underlined in your Bible because, you know, 
we get into positions where we feel in our lives that, you know, we're, have you ever felt like you're at the kind of the last straw in your life or, you know, you didn't want to really want to go any farther and, and you just, you know, you thought your future was kind of bleak and what Paul is saying here is that's where we were at. We were, we were, we were so down that we had to look up to see the ground. Okay, And yet, he says, but this happened that we might not rely upon ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us, that's past tense, from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for your for the gracious favor granted in us in answer to the prayers of many. Paul's going to show his love for these people now. He says in verse 12, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. Now stay with me for another five minutes and we'll, we'll go to the end of chapter one. Because I hear some people yawning out there. Hey, right, here we go. So he says this. He says in the last part of, well let's just read verse 13. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. I, when I read this uh, today, I thought about the sect of the Stoics and those, um, I'm trying to think of what the right word was, but they were, they were masters of hidden wisdom, okay? They were in the club of hidden wisdom. And I don't think it was called Stoic, it was called... Um, Oh, there's another word for it, and I can't think. Say again. No, it wasn't the Essenes, but anyway. Um, so he basically, and, and they were in Paul's church here. They were in, at Corinth, and they were trying to gain a foothill. All right. The Gnostics. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. -S, Gnostics. Or Gnostics, if you don't know how to pronounce it. Um, and what these people did is that they pr prided themselves in wisdom. But it wasn't wisdom that everybody could learn. It was secret wisdom. And we have that today even in, people, in groups like the Illuminati and in groups like that where they have this secret wisdom that they're not letting anybody. The skull and bones and all the rest of these other things that we know um, are in our world. So he goes on. So we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand, and I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we boast of you in the day of our Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia. We just read that in chapter 16, didn't we? and then come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. 
When I planned this, did I do it lightly? No. Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? And that's what they were accusing him of, being, being fickle. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Pick a promise, my friends. Turn your Bible to some page that has a promise on it. Read the promise, and you know what you can say? It's yes in Christ. It's not no. My God shall meet all your needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus. Is that a yes or a no? That's a yes. Okay. And, I mean, you can go on and on. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Is that a yes or a no? That's a yes. So all of the promises that God made are yes in Christ. Now that doesn't mean you're going to get a yes for every prayer that you pray. Okay? God might say no, or he might say wait. Now it is God, he says, verse 21, who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirits in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So the spirit that we have, the Holy Spirit that we have in our hearts, that is the earnest money on God's uh, purchase of our souls. It is a guarantee that you will go to heaven. Okay? You know, it's so sad, this fellow that works for me, great, he's a great guy, he goes to a Pentecostal church, and, um, you know, he said the other day, he says, all I want to do is just make it to heaven. All I want to do is just make it to heaven. And I looked at him and I said, brother, you are going to go to heaven. You don't really have a choice now, okay? You're going there. So why don't you just enjoy the ride, okay? Instead of, you know, always being so bound up in your, in your hearts, Well, probably not. Um, I mean, it says, it says this. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul says, believe and uh, speak it with your tongue. Okay. Um, James says, oh, good, you have faith. The demons have faith and they shudder. You know, the de demons believe that there is a God. I mean, they know it for a fact. They know Jesus Christ because we know from the Gospels, they would say, we know who you are, and they're not saved. So, you know, I would say this, that, again, you know, salvation is a very uh, personal decision with Jesus, you know, made, made with God about Jesus Christ. 
And the one thing about it, the one thing I heard uh, just recently is this, is we're going to be surprised at how many people are in heaven that we didn't think made it. Okay? Bill? Yeah, so we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, our, our gospel message. What is our gospel message? Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He resurrected from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven. He's alive right now, ever living to make a sen- uh, intercession for us. The gospel is of... And what did Paul say in the first few couple chapters there of 1 Corinthians? We didn't come to you in man's wisdom. We came to you uh, in, in God's words, and God's word is very simple. The foolishness of preaching the cross is foolish to those who don't believe. It's foolish. But it's to us, it's the way of salvation. Well, let's finish this up, and we'll go to chapter 2 next week. He says... And I love, I'm going I'm to repeat this chapter uh, 1, verse 21 and 22 again, because it's really important. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set a seal of ownership on us. He put a spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. So here he's telling them, I, didn't, I, I know I didn't make it back. Not that we lorded over your faith because we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. So in verse 1 he says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you for... Let me see what, hold on just a minute here. For, I turned too many pages. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? So these guys, and uh, we'll get to it as we get, especially here in uh, chapter 11. Here's what he says about these apostles and you can read chapter 11 for yourself but he says this for such these were the people that were giving Paul a hard time for such men are false apostles deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light it is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Well, we didn't get quite as far as I wanted to tonight, but that's okay. I think Second Corinthians is very interesting myself, but you know, and, and it amazes me too how that. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've read First and Second Corinthians, dozens maybe. I don't know, and yet I'm still finding stuff that I oh, I didn't know that was in there. You know what I mean? So, 
just studying it, sometimes just reading it, um, just brings you to a, a little bit better understanding of what, um, what God's telling us. Well, let's pray so you can go home. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful letter that Paul wrote to this church and for letting us be um, a part of, of understanding and knowing it. We just pray that, Lord God, you will uh, bless this church that we're in, this body of believers, and Lord, help us to be in unity with one another, and Lord, help us to uh, restrain ourselves from sinning against you or sinning against each other by gossiping or backbiting or doing anything like that. We pray that you'll bless the Sunday service, Lord, the music, the musicians, the teaching, the teachers, and the students, and that you bring as many people as you want to have come, for we'll give it Give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys got real quiet toward the end there. Hmm. Hmm. Must be the cold weather combined with the darkness, combined with listening to me.